This is Unstructured. Today we're joined by legendary podcaster, producer, editor. That's how our guest describes himself. I, I wouldn't go legendary. I, I would. I, I don't add that on there. <laughs> well, that's true. He just says podcaster, producer, editor. He's a very humble guy, but wow. He's one of those people that when I start digging, I have to keep digging and I have to keep digging and then I have to reformulate. Well, wait, do we talk about that? Well, that could be a show. Or do we talk about this? Oh, wait, that could be a show. Well, today's guest is Jason DeFilippo of Grumpy Old Geeks podcast. He is also the co-host of the Jordan Harbinger show. Jordan Harbinger has been a previous guest on here in episode 61, and we've talked a little bit about Jason DeFilippo on there too. How's it going today, Jason? It's going well. It's a little early thanks to the time change. Wasn't expecting that today. Oh, yeah. Don't remind me. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't bother me that much, but it bothers my dogs. So (laughs) it's like I'm on their schedule. So if it bothers them, it bothers you then. Exactly. Exactly. Well, now I'm not sure exactly where to start with you. So let's start with some fun. I happen to be digging around for a picture of you Mm -hmm. and I found a old-timey screenshot because somebody actually used a camera and took a picture of a television and there's jason DeFilippo on call for help oh yeah god the old call for help one that was uh that was 17 lifetimes ago was that when it was ZDTV or tech tv that was tech tv yeah that was that was tech tv we shot that up in san francisco that was that was on my first trip to san francisco ever i went to go hang out with chris perillo that was before we started working together and i started working with him and running his company but uh, yeah, I went. I got off the plane, went to the tech TV studios, and you know, hung out for a couple hours, and then we did an episode of Call for Help. That's so cool. So, not to name drop, I've had Alex Lindsay on here. Okay, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm guessing you know him. Then I don't know him personally. No, no. Okay, I know a, I know a lot of that crew, but I, I I don't know Alex. Okay, Leo Laporte. Met yeah, I know Leo pretty well. We've met uh, several times. We hung out at, uh, at like different things after Tech TV ended because he was starting his shows up in uh, San Francisco and we we ran in the same circles. Yeah, you were, you're I'm guessing not only a uh, producer but friends with Kevin Rose and I'm assuming that mm-hmm. that's kind of a tie with that whole bunch. Yeah, Kevin actually shouted out a company I just started working with called Technorati on uh, the Screensavers one day. And we were at a, some kind of WordPress thing up in the the Castro and he came into the same bar that I was hanging out in. And so I just went up to him and said, Hey man, thanks for shouting out the show. And we just struck up a conversation, became friends, found out we lived about two blocks away from each other and just hung out all the time back then. And we're still friends to this day. Oh, that's cool. So you were living in the San Francisco Bay area. Yeah. I lived up there for a couple of years for Technorati and a couple other startups, but uh, yeah, I still (laughs) actually edit Kevin's podcast. And his wife, Daria's podcast. Okay, yeah. I, I was wondering if you were still doing that. Are you also still doing Tim Ferriss? No, I stopped uh, Tim Ferriss's show a while ago. The last episode I did for him was the Richard Branson episode. So I did about 115 episodes of his show. So anything after Richard Branson, you can't blame me for. <laughs> okay. Well, see, I mean, that's that's an amazing crowd. And um, now you're just dropping, oh, yeah, I did this startup, that startup. And, and you do that a lot in Feedback Friday. You'll be like, oh, yeah, with the startups or... Um, you mentioned Paramount and Star Trek. So Mm -hmm. let's dig back into some history, I guess. Okay. You started rolling. um, Are you from the Chicago area originally or? No, I've moved over. I got at this point. I mean, it's over a hundred times, so I'm not really from anywhere, but uh, I spent a lot, a lot of time in Chicago, in Chicago or Los Angeles are pretty much my, 
my two bases of operation. If, if you listen to Grumpy Old Geeks, my co-host Brian makes fun of me because every two years I get tired of either one and move back. <laughs> so I got another year here in L.A. before I head out. I have a solution for you. What? Have a summer home in Chicago and a winter home in L.A. Yeah. Yeah. I thought about that, but uh, I don't <laughs> I don't have that. I don't, that. That podcast money doesn't really support that kind of lifestyle. Not yet. Not yet. But Fingers top 25, crossed. top 25 of uh, 2018 first year. Not bad. Yeah, that really came out. That was a shocker for all of us. Yeah, when the, when we woke up one morning, I'm like going through going through the the, the awards. I'm like, okay, we're never going to get an Apple award. Apple hates us. And then <laughs> right there at the very end of most downloaded new shows, there was a Jordan Harbinger show, and it's just like I tell you what, the champagne was popping that day. I'm going to segue, and I'll get back to um, your original. But I use your shows as a research point because I constantly okay. research guests obsessively. Mm-hmm. So I'll find it, old interviews and. Some of them will be Art of Charm. Mm-hmm. Some of them will be Jordan Harbinger. And I have to tell you, like, I have Steve Sims coming on pretty soon. So I was listening to interviews with him. And you and Jordan sounded almost like you were hostages, especially towards the end. <laughs> it, uh, it, it, the Art of Charm? Yes. Oh, yeah. No, that was a uh, Helsinki syndrome thing going on there. <laughs> I no. just noticed it because I, because I'm researching, you know, a, B coverage, literally like, okay, you talk to them here, you talk to them there. It's like, wow, God, it was dark. I mean, I could just hear in your voice that come February, you were a little worried, but like March, April, whatever, just the lightness in your tones mm-hmm. comes out completely like we're having fun. F yeah. man. This is our pirate ship, like Corolla. It, it really was because, I mean, we were beholden to the, you know, the raison d'etre of the art of charm, which was basically not really what Jordan and I wanted to do. We we evolved past what they were doing and they, the other partners kept trying to drag us down and make sure that we covered the things that they were selling, you know, cause they sold boot camps to guys to learn how to pick up women, which was not really what Jordan and I wanted to do. We wanted to make people better, not just take their money. So that was, we were really like, we, we outgrew them a long time before the, the end came, but the end the end finally came and oh, sweet relief. <laughs> and was, I mean, last year sucked. I'm not going to, you know, we start, had to start from scratch. So sure. it was a, it was a terrible year at the beginning, but by the end of the year, things started to get back to normal. And now we're doing, you know, so much better than we were over there because we're not hamstrung by the stupid name of the, the show and the company. So, because you try and you try and explain to a guest, you know, oh, you're going to come on the art of charm podcast. Like, oh, that, that sounds, mean? yeah. What is that? And we had to work on guests forever to get them to just say, yeah, we'll come on. You know, we had to convince them that the show is not a douchey show. You know, we have to send them all of the guests that we had that, you know, gave us really good feedback. And, you know, once we started to get, you know, people like Tony Hawk on and the generals and the CIA guys and all that, the tide tended to turn. But I mean, I spent two, two and a half years to get Chris Hadfield on because his son was like, I'm not going to let my dad go on your show. No way. Huh. It was a, it was a slog to get people in. Now that we're we're us, it's just it's so much easier. I'm going to go into that too about how you recruit guests and vet guests and different things, especially your role because you pre-interview and different things. But let's jump back uh, to yeah. track. You started out, and I guess in '94, I would just call the point of your career trajectory. Um, Epson building a website for them in LA. Yeah, yeah. What it was was I went to the school for photography. Turns out I sucked at being uh, around a lot of people. I had really bad social anxiety. So to be a 
you know, a good photographer to make a living at photography, you have to be social. And I wasn't social, but computers let me not be social. So (laughs) I started building websites in like early 94. And I did a little site called Spew, which got, you know, it was one of the early hits, big hit back in the day. And so I got hired by a company that brought me out to Los Angeles. I went there to build the first website for Epson America and did that, did a couple more websites, moved to another company called Rocktropolis which was one of the, I don't know if you remember the internet site of the day. I mean, this was back in 95. 94, yeah, back 95. When, you, when you could track all the internet sites. With exactly. Internet, yeah, with there was a gigabyte. Of data. It was a small crew <laughs> back then, all of us. But this site, Rocktropolis, got picked up for uh, best site of the year, and he got funding, so I went over there. And through that relationship, I did a bunch of sites there. I did the first site for uh, Paisley Park with Prince there. And, oh, wow. Uh, that was that was one of the fun ones. Did some of the first movie sites there. Did you get to meet him? No, no. He they oh. were in they were yeah they were in Paisley Park and I was in L.A. But it, through through those relationships, I en- and eventually did a couple more jobs and ended up at Paramount. And once I was at Paramount, I was the head programmer at Paramount. So we did a bunch of movies there. I worked on Star Trek, Titanic, um, and I made like thirty websites there. Howard Stern's movie, Private Parts, and yeah, that was my that really got me into motion picture marketing, which I did off and on for, you know, literally off and on for like 20 years. Wow. That's amazing. And you were using PHP back mm-hmm. then. I, I've taught on um, PHP, Perl, et cetera. I have a web developing background, mm-hmm. uh, but that's, that's really early days. Yeah. Most of the stuff was Perl. I mean, okay. all of, <laughs> yeah, all the, all the early stuff was Perl. We didn't start using, I started using PHP when it kind of got stable at, I, I, I'm not going to say stable at two. Uh, but once it moved to version three, then it really started to drop everything uh, in Perl and moved to PHP. And I used that for the rest of my career. You are not um, doing that much in web programming now? Oh, no. I completely retired six years ago. I know. I I can still, I you know, I'm still good in Vim. I can still shell around and I got my SSH clients and everything ready to go if one day that this podcasting thing doesn't work and I got to jump back into web dev, uh, which, you know, I'd rather take a bullet instead of doing that. But it, uh, yeah, that, that transition from getting out of programming into podcasting was, was so liberating after 25 years of programming. What burned you out on it? Uh, turning 40 was really it. Once you hit 40, it's almost impossible to get a job. You have to, you have to freelance. That's the only way to stay above board. And it just got being a contractor, you know, building crap in WordPress day in, day out, or just little one-offs, it, it'll burn you out. You know, dealing with clients who don't want to pay or pay late and nickel and dime you on everything. It just got to be too much, too much, especially, you know, at that age. And like, you know, I got to figure out what's going on for the next round. And then Jordan came along and, you know, gave me my second wind and it's fa- been fantastic. That's awesome. I could totally relate on that too. I'm, I'm with the mindset now where I mean, I came up with hand coding, mm-hmm. HTML4, and then XHTML. And I look at it now, it's like, why would you hand code? Just get WordPress and just go put it together. It's all oh, out yeah. there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's sort of like I came up building PCs, and I'm now like, just buy a Mac and go to the yeah, genius. Exactly. No, I've, I totally, it's totally the same route. I mean, I started with HTML1. I was working overnight at Kinko's, and I remember printing out the entire HTML1 spec and uh, binding it and putting cover on it, making the little uh, cover in Kai's power tools in Photoshop too. Wow. And I had that book for years 
But when I first started to learn HTML, you could read the entire spec in a mm. night and I would just read it over and over and over again. And that served me well for years. And I think the, the other thing that I had that got me started was uh, learn Perl in 31 days. Big, one of those big, thick books is one of the first programming books that, that came wow. out when Perl was uh, pretty big. That book, I think, got me farther in my career than any other book. And the funny part is I never finished it. Oh, wow. I, I found technical books to almost be the reverse mm. where the 70 page books I found to be the most valuable. Yeah. This, there was no other option back then. I mean, there were O'Reilly didn't exist, you know, or peach pit press or all the, yeah. but yeah, it's funny because I think about that. And even my publisher, Charles river, they got subsumed and bought by Del Mar, who then was bought by Thompson. And now I don't even know if there is much publication in the tech world. Yeah, I don't know. I really don't know since I haven't really been into it that much. Um, I mean, I bought my last O'Reilly book like maybe 10 years ago. So oh, wow. I had I had them, almost all of them at one point. My whole my whole bookshelf was just O'Reilly. So I could go and just have reference for everything. I'm like, oh, I got to write a said script. OK, let me go find my where's my said knock book and things like that. You know, wow. Now, blogrolling.com. Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. Blogrolling.com was it was just one of those things where I started out trying to figure out something to do with blogs. I wanted to do a catalog of every blog. That's what it kind of started out as. Huh. And because this is after Doc Searles coined the term, you know, if you remember the book, The Clue Train Manifesto, that was the hot hotness back then. And so I started just writing code because it was winter in Chicago. I'm stuck in my house. I've got tech TV <laughs> on all day. The screensavers are on loop. I've got nothing to do in between movies. And I'm just like, start coding and just make stuff up. And then I had this huge database of blogs and it was just scrolling through getting the RSS feeds. You know, it was just a big RSS hound getting like tens of thousands of blogs. And then I just kind of dawned on me one day, what if I can put, I'd make a list of links for me, for my site, just from this database. And then I can see when the latest one's updated. Mm. Cause every time, every time, you know, someone's RSS feed would, would update in my SQL, I just have a flag that say updated this date. So you can see what, uh, what's new. Right. And I did this for myself, like the initial list. And I started to learn JavaScript because JavaScript was really young back then. Mm -hmm. And so I made a JavaScript widget that would pull from the database. I made a, you know, just give me an ID, get my list, put it in, put it in the sidebar in my blog. And back then my, my blog was completely coded by me. So it wasn't like, you know, sure. it was just all custom code and it made this list of blogs. And then next to the, the ones that are new had a little asterisk and people started to ask me if they could use it. I'm like, okay. Then I'm like, okay, let me, let me figure that out. Then I made, made a user account system, made all the other stuff. And then more people were just seeing it because I put a little powered by blog rolling at the bottom, of course. And once that started to take off, I'm like, well, crap, I got nothing else to do. Let's turn it into a product. So I built a whole front end for it, started to get people using it. And then I, you know, once I got feedback in, you know, after your MVP, I got started to get feedback in and started adding, you know, cool custom features where it would just do certain things like it would actually take you could order your your list of links from the title of the the length of the title of the blog from longest to smallest. So you could have a little triangle. You could do a little hourglass. You could make shapes with the name oh, of funny. the blogs. Oh, that's cool. So that was a really fun one. And I ended up selling that to two cows eventually. Mm. I was wondering what, as it got big, if you started to get into problems of uh -oh, bandwidth cost, it's getting hit a lot. Not so much bandwidth cost because I optimized the hell out of that. I was really good at optimization because I remember I started out in 94 when, you, you know, every single character counted. And 
I was pretty good with that. I had a pretty good ISP. And the only time I really got into trouble was during the first Gulf War, there was one blogger who was using my service and he was in Baghdad and he had a very famous blogger site. And every, like, you know, every time that thing would load, it would hit my database and pull it out. So I started to learn how to do, you know, pretty dynamic caching and things like that. It teaches when you get hit pretty hard, you learn on the fly really fast on how to scale. But I ended up talking to the guys at Blogger, and that's how I met Evan Williams and that crew. Oh, okay. And we we worked on a solution where like, you know, they could offload it because he disappeared. So everybody on the news cycles was hitting the blog. They like it was in on CNN and it was everywhere during the war and it was killing my server. So I had to do like all this crazy stuff to get it off of there. And those guys really helped out with figuring out how to scale it and things like that and you know, offloading some of the processes. So those that's that was my the first time I met Evan, and then eventually hung out with him quite a bit in San Francisco. Thus, that's why you're one of the first 100 um, users of Twitter. Uh, yeah, I actually uh, my friend Jason Shellen, who also used to work at Blogger, he sent me the invite. I was I was in the first 140. Yeah, except I eventually deleted my account. So if you go through the list of the first 140 user IDs, because back, I think they may still have it. User IDs were just numerical sequences. So my, there are a few IDs that are blank because they used to delete them and not reuse them. So one of the blank ones was mine. Yeah. It was silly. I should have kept it. <laughs> really should have well, kept yeah, it. Well, yeah. I'm surprised you don't have a verified. Oh, no, no, no. I don't talk to anybody over there anymore. And the whole verification system shut down now anyway. Oh, really? But I also, yeah, the, the other person that I met through blog rolling, which turned out to be, you know, one of my greatest lifelong friends was Joey Ito, who was just a VC guy back then. And I was taking donations on PayPal and people would send me like a buck or two. And one day I get a PayPal donation for a thousand dollars. And I'm like, what? You got to be kidding me. And huh. I got to know him and uh, he's like, yeah, I want to uh, just make sure that you keep doing what you're doing. And then we started hanging out and turns out we liked a lot of the same stuff. So we'd see each other at different conferences and things like that. And now he's the head of the MIT Media Lab, which is just insane. That is so cool. <laughs> Yeah, and he used to be a DJ in Chicago, which was great. Well, I mean, since we're into the names and everything else, I had seen in a previous appearance when I was researching, you got to know the father of podcasts. Now, is that Adam Curry or Dave Weiner? Uh, Dave Weiner. I, I okay. didn't know him all that well. We were adjacent a lot. We talked quite a bit and we got in a lot of fights and then he blocked me and never talked to me again. <laughs> <laughs> is that because of your blog rolling and the RSS tie that you kind of naturally know him? Uh, yeah. And, uh, just running in the same circles and, you know, being some of the first bloggers because they were like, they, it was a small crew of bloggers back then. So I learned a lot from him. He's a very smart guy. And, uh, yeah, we just butted heads on too many things. And I was very critical of him a couple of times. And he's just like, I don't have time for this and blocked me. Like, who's this peon? <laughs> <laughs> that is too funny. Oh my yeah. God. He's a curmudgeon. He's a total curmudgeon. Well, that's up your alley. You're a bit of a curmudgeon, or at least now you are, right? Now I am. Back then, I was just an arrogant prick. So, <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I was right. a kid. I was a, I was a kid. I was in my like late twenties, early thirties. Yeah, and the whole field tends to pull from a certain personality type. Yes, yes. One, one with very few social skills and conversational skills, <laughs> at least back then. Well, I can totally agree, and I, I would argue that almost all podcasters are introverts. A lot of them are, yeah, except now that we have all the celebrities, they, they're not. But uh, a lot of podcasters definitely are. I don't know many extroverted podcasters, to be honest. When you say celebrities, do you mean c celebrity podcasters or celebrities who become podcasters? Celebrities who become podcasters with the, okay. the whole influx. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> but yeah, 
most podcasters I know, you know, like their quiet time. Yeah, I figured that even like Tim Ferriss, who's about as big of a name and out there as possible, is probably still introverted, except when he has to turn it on and perform. Totally. He's a total introvert. Tim's an introvert. Kevin's an introvert. Yeah, most tech people tend to skew that way. Unless you're in the C-suite and the CEO and the front-facing guys are in PR, most of the tech guys and the people you know behind the scenes, all introverts. Which kind of works well. That's why it's sort of fun at the conferences when it's like, oh, my people. I can hang out. (laughs) Definitely. Now, there's a lot of parallel lines in there. You've got Dave Weiner. You knew him. And you mentioned Evan Williams. I don't know. Do you also know Jack Dorsey? Were you No, I never met Jack. Never met Jack. Um, Okay. That was was before. It was mainly uh, Jason Shellen and Evan Williams were the main guys that I knew from Blogger that went on to Twitter. And you had developed an early methodology of transferring podcasts to the iPod, from what I understand. No, that was Kevin Marks. That was my friend, Kevin. He worked at Technorati with me. He was that guy. Okay. okay. And you worked with him on it or no? Just No, he did that on his own. He just wrote a Python script one day and came and showed it to us. So it was pretty cool. That was really when that started. So you were listening to podcasts before they were even well-known as podcasts? Yeah. Internet yeah. Audio files. Yeah. As soon as Dave Weiner started putting in RSS enclosures and uh, we could download them. That was pretty much it. It was before it was podcasting long before. And you had mentioned knowing the uh, guys with Twit. Were you involved or talking to him? Because I feel like uh, Kevin Rose is the one who kind of told Leo Laporte to do a podcast or or turned him in that direction. Yeah. I don't know the history of Twit for that. I remember the first day Kevin was on the screensavers, but uh, like his and Kevin or Kevin and Leo's relationship, I don't know how that all worked out. I never really, never really talked to Kevin about that. Well, let's start swinging and talking about the industry. You've been doing Grumpy Old Geeks for a while. You have a couple other shows off and on. Mm-hmm. Are they still going? I, I forgot. Does it have legs? Is it still going? Or I've got two in the can that I've had for a year that I just. <laughs> it, it, it was a that show started. Does it have legs? Was the original premise was a couple guys sit around watch a movie that's twenty years old or longer and review it to see if it still has legs. And the there's two reasons I started that show. One. I wanted to hang out with my roommate, Mike, at least once a week, sit down, have a couple of beers and watch a movie and relax because cool. it's like we that way we turn everything off and just watch a movie. And then we talk about it, you know, like people used to do. And then I'm like, well, I'm a podcaster, so we might as well record it. If you're going to talk, you might as well record it. <laughs> you got to get value out of it. <laughs> yeah. And it was also at the time when I was uh, using road podcasters it was pieces of garbage. Um, and everybody said that you could not use multiple USB mics on the same Mac. And I'm like, well, I don't believe you. We're going to, we're going to fix that assumption real quick. So I figured out how to use multiple USB mics Hmm. on the same Mac. It was tricky and you had to have to use GarageBand to record, but I did it. And so we started a show with me and two of my friends and just kind of ran with that. And that was one of those test beds. I've done a couple test bed podcasts just to learn how to do a show a certain way or learn a new technology or things like that. I'm always experimenting. I brought my, that's the one thing that I don't think a lot of people understand was when I left software, I was very, you know, methodical about how I did everything in software. Sure. I brought that, I brought that mentality to podcasting. So I'm like, let's test, let's test everything. Let's learn new technology every, every week. Let's figure out what the state of the industry is. I'm very methodical about how I do podcasting and learn about podcasting and technology and things like that. So that was a test bed to run three road podcasters through an iMac and get a show out of it. And it worked. That makes sense. And I was going to ask you if that came from your software world, because when I was teaching it, I'd always say, come up with a project mm-hmm. because you can read and try every 
example in the world, but you'll never learn unless you're building something and you have to solve problems the whole way. Yep, exactly. Scratch your own itch. That's the best way to do it. I mean, that's how blog rolling started and it's how a lot of the different things I do in podcasting start. Grumpy old geeks and mm-hmm. art of charm. I think you started with art of charm as a developer. Is that correct? Yeah, I was the, I was the main tech at art of charm for like a year and a half cleaning up all the garbage that the other people that they hired had done all the technical debt, like getting rid of it. And then I, I got them over to a really good clean WordPress install, fixed all their plugins, did all this crazy stuff with them and kind of engineered my way out of a job. I'm like, okay, you're work- <laughs> everything works now. If you need to update, hit that button. Otherwise, I'm done. And it was at that point, you know, Jordan and I met because of another company that I ran called Metro Blogging. And I had a site called Blogging LA. So when Jordan moved to LA, he was hitting up all the bloggers and he mm. had hit me up to, you know, try and get a piece on on one of my blogs. And I'm like, oh, hey, I listened to your podcast. Oh, and because wow. Tim Ferriss turned me on to him. And I was moving back and forth to San Francisco. So I was driving up and down the five multiple times a month. And I would just, I had all of their shows on. So I was listening to them all the time. So when Mm -hmm. I got to meet them, I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool. I get to meet a a famous podcaster. And so we got to be friends. And then he brought me in as the tech to fix all the problems at the Art of Charm. But the entire time that I was doing the tech, we're talking about podcasting. He's teaching me about the gear Mm -hmm. that he's using. I'm learning on my own, like figuring out, okay, what's a limiter? What's a gate? What's a compressor? What's a knee? What's a release? What's an attack? And all this stuff on my own, because he wasn't really that technical with it, but I Mm -hmm. wanted to learn everything about it. By the time that I was finishing up my, my stint with the tech side, he was finally getting the podcast to the point where it was popular enough where he really needed help because he was doing everything himself. We had our friend Jason Sanderson in England who was doing the editing at that point, but everything else Jordan was handling on his own. So I came in to help produce the show and eventually worked my way into being on the show, which happened pretty quickly. And that was kind of the transition for the art of charm for me going from the tech guy into the podcasting world. I can visualize it splitting the company where it's sort of like the podcast team, you, Jordan, Jen... And this is long other. before Jen. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jen, yeah, yeah, even, yeah. It was just me and Jordan back then. That was pretty much it. I'd love to go into workflows because you had mentioned, you know, Jordan did everything and then you do everything or no, I don't know if you do everything for Grumpy Elk Geeks. You have on other shows, but you have a partner on Grumpy Elk Geeks. Yeah. There, there are two distinct workflows there. I'll, I'll tell you about Grumpy Elk Geeks first. My partner, Brian and I, uh, we just, past our six year anniversary for that show. Congrats. And that came that that actually came out of working on the art of charm. I'm like, well, I'm working on somebody else's show, but I kind of want my own. So <laughs> I was hunting for like, you know, six or seven months trying to find a co-host. And then it was right in front of me, my friend Brian, who's a developer for 20 years, we would go down to Finn McCool's in Santa Monica, get drunk and just kvetch about tech for <laughs> like four hours you know, every week. Just go hang out. And I'm like, you're my host. You're, you're my co-host. You want to do it? And he's like, yeah. So that's how we started that show. What made you decide you wanted to co-host? Uh, because I I think it's better. You have to have somebody else on the show. I mean, I did one show by myself called Vapid, which was kind of like a daily diary. I did that for like a year. And that was also another experiment to see if I could write and do a solo show. And, and I just didn't like it that much. I liked having a co-host. You know, I, I just like the dynamic. And also for me, it's also about getting out of the house, being with your friends, having some beers. I like the the social aspect of podcasting when you can, when you can be around somebody and get out more because being a programmer is a solitary existence. If you're a contractor. Yeah. So 
It's like, let's use this platform to actually make friends, meet new people and get out there and do things like that. So that was really kind of the impetus for that. Cause I would drive to Santa Monica every week from the Valley just to go do the show with him. And it was fun. Cool. We just sit at his place in Venice and get schnookered and do the show. We don't do that as much anymore. <laughs> so really, it's a slightly more sober show than it once was. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he has a kid now and I don't like driving to Santa Monica anymore. <laughs> uh, so but, do you do uh, it remotely? Um, Using Skype or something, or oh, we use Zencaster. That's Zencaster. that's what we're using right now. Yeah, it's it works when it works. <laughs> you know, if <laughs> if it doesn't work that day, then we'll just do uh, double enders or triple enders on Skype, depending on if we have our other host on. But uh, the workflow for that show now is we have a one single document in Quip Q U I P, and it's a really nice collaborative development platform for what we're doing. It's not cheap but it's the best for what we're doing. Uh, we tried Google Docs. Google Docs is not good if you have two people in there because the formatting gets all messed up because I have to take that document at the end of the show, turn it into a mm-hmm. WordPress post, and it, doing it in Google Docs is a pain. But Quip worked out really well for us. We've done a bunch of different collaborative uh, packages over the years, most of which have died in a fire and gone away. Hmm. So we'll bo- we both read a couple thousand articles every week, and then we put in the what we think is the cream of the crop and then we'll bullet the highlights of them. And then that's our script for the week. Mm, okay. And then, you know, just basically hop on, do the show. We, we just finished episode 327. So we kind of got it down to a, a science. <laughs> and you're both, you know? I guessing uh, tech and news junkies. Uh, not so much news junkies, but you have to be for the show. That's right. kind of it. Tech junkies. Yeah. I mean, we've been doing it for so long. It's just in our blood. Um, I'm I hate to spin it away a little bit, but you've mentioned Audible and having to research for, you know, listening to audiobooks. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious because I've gotten to the point, especially doing my show, where if I have somebody coming on and they wrote a book, if it's not an Audible, I'm going to have a problem. Yeah, we don't do books. Or we don't do shows with people who don't have audiobooks. Is that both? Unless they're person, unless they're personalities, you know, and then we can just research them without having to read the book, but. For uh, the Jordan Harbinger show, Jordan will not do anything if he can't read the book. So we we have to have Audible. Okay. <laughs> so I'm not alone in that. No, yeah. It's too much work to read a book. It takes too much time. Well, again, yeah, I have a day job. So I'm like sneaking in. Yeah. <laughs> trying yeah. To there you go. Keep one AirPod in and run the show. Mm, yeah. Literally. Mm-hmm. Is anybody looking? Okay. Oh, bathroom break. Here's 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. When you are you reading books for both shows or is it primarily? Yeah. Um, for there, it's different reasons for each show. Cause Jordan's show, read it to learn more about the guest and be able to do a better show because it, it's not so much. I don't have to read that many for Jordan's show anymore because of the, we changed the format of how we record. Um, but for grumpy old geeks, we have a one episode, we do two episodes a week there and we have different formats for each show. And one of them has a book recommendation seg- segment called at the library. So we, Brian and I are both avid readers. So we try and get in, you know, a book or two. A week to be able to at least review it and tell people what we're what we're listening to moving back to the workflow mm-hmm. after you record I mean, you, you both do it remotely how do you go about it do you then grab the file edit it do you have somebody else edit it what's the i wish somebody else would edit <laughs> i really really <laughs> do um how technical do you want me to get kind of into the um the general because i'm guessing that the editing on gog is lighter than the editing on Jordan Harbinger? About the same. I, I, I spend as much time on each one. So it, it, cause Grumpy Old Geeks is, you know, it's more structured and we've kind of got it down. So we don't have as many flubs and things like that. But right. so what I'll do is I'll take the Zencaster files, 
run them through my processing scripts and everything, get, get the audio the way I want it to be, take it into logic, cut it up, add the bumpers and everything, and then spit that out. But it's, it's a pretty straightforward workflow there. I use a couple different tools, Isotope, Advanced, Isotope 7, Advanced, Ophonic, and then just logic for the most part. And I use the same stack on Jordan's show as well. Do you do a lot of deumming and things like that or no? Depends. It really depends on the, the, the guest. If they're an um factory, then, <laughs> you know, I can spend, I've, I've spent 10 hours on a show because somebody is an um or a stutterer and a pauser at the same time, you know? Oh yeah. Uh, so it's, it, for Jordan's show, it's a crapshoot. Depends on the guest, depends on their speaking ability because, you know, you get a scientist in, he's not used to being on mic. He doesn't know how to do it. So he's always going, um, and oh, um, smack, um, that mm. I cannot stand that. I, I, that lip smack noise drives me crazy. So I, I have to <laughs> do all of those. Yeah. It, you know, isotope is great for mouth de-click. So it doesn't sound like they're smacking the whole time. Like they need a, a glass of water. <laughs> I, I use it on myself too. I mean, it, it comes through on me too. Uh, and then the rest of it is just tightening things up. For Jordan's thing, we have to make sure that the story is cohesive. So sometimes you have to Frankenstein an episode because they'll talk about one thing here. And it's a point that should be up front or in the back. So I move that stuff around a lot. Oh, okay. I, so you, you'll literally like have a question and answer and then move it to a different point. So the flow's a if, little if, different? Yeah, if the story makes more sense that way. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of Jordan stuff I edit for story. Not The technical stuff is easy. It takes time, but it's, you know, not super hard. But I think for what that show is about, which is to teach people certain skills. So when they end the show, they can go implement what they just heard on the show. That's the main thing that that's our main focus for the Jordan Harbinger show. Grumpy Old Geeks is to teach you something that you didn't know that morning with some funny tech crap that's gone on and make you laugh, hopefully, or cry in a lot of cases (laughs) because it can get depressing out there, but we try and make it funny. So it's a different, <laughs> it's a different kind of show for each one. So the editing is different, but from a technical standpoint, you know, the technical sides are the, basically the same. Well, I think it's good that you have two different shows and experiences, or you probably start to get tired of one or the other. Oh, well, I'm just tired in general <laughs> between five shows there. And I've got, you know, the other shows that are coming around. It's nice to have different types of shows like editing Daria Rose's show. I haven't done that for a while because she's on maternity leave. She just had another kid. Hopefully she'll be back soon. Her show, The Foodist Podcast, was completely different than anything I've done because it's her talking to women about their issues and weight loss and things like that. And it's like, hmm. it was a really hard thing to get into at the beginning. But I found like after, you know, 10 or 20 episodes, I'm like, I actually really enjoy doing this show. It's kind of fun to hear these women talk about these things. And I learn a few things that I would never, I would never go listen to that podcast otherwise. And then I learn stuff because I'm forced to listen to it and make it good and make it coherent. And I ended up being a guest on the show at one point. So I learned enough from her show that I implemented the things on her show. And then she brought me back on as a guest. Well, yeah, that's right. You're a bit of a foodie, aren't you? Yes, I am actually cooking a Persian stew today called Gorma Sabzi. Love that stuff. All right, perfect. So I imagine that would help a lot with uh, Daria's show being the foodist. It might kind of be refreshing and fun. Yeah, it is. It really is. She was doing a thing on uh, mindful eating that really was kind of cool, where you just slow down for your meals. And I actually lost five pounds doing that. It was pretty good. Oh, God, that reminds me of a hypnotist who helped with uh, weight loss back in the day. And one of his big things was to chew or fully masticate every um, bite. 
Mm-hmm. You'll have to have at least 20 chews of every piece or something like that. And by slowing down a, a whole lot, then you get full quicker. Yeah, it's it because your your body takes a while to register fullness and things like that. My grandmother used to do that, and she was the worst person to go out to lunch with. It took uh, her forever, forever. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Practice this at home. Do not do it with your yeah. friends, or they will be looking askance, especially if you're a talker. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, take a bite in the middle of a sentence, and three hours later, it's like, guys, I got to go. Come on. <laughs> Well, let's let's jump in and have some fun. I I know that you have thoughts on the industry and I want to go into different things because there's different philosophies. We're all trying to figure out this black art called um, podcasting and growing the audience. And one of the things I want to start with you on is a famous uh, podcasting coach, uh, Dave Jackson, who's now a Hall of Famer, goes on and on and rails about how iTunes reviews are worthless they don't matter and they don't count. But I do know that on at least the Jordan Harbinger show, you guys make a very specific point of asking for a review. You even give examples of how a listener can do a review. So I'm guessing that you hold the opposite view. Is that fair? Well, there's a there's a reason you want to ask for them in the beginning, for sure. It's called social proof. You want new people that come to your show that see a bunch of reviews of people that say, this is a great show that will make people subscribe more. Or if you're looking to book a guest, if a guest comes on and sees that you have 200 episodes and 10 reviews, if they're doing their due diligence on you, they're going to say, well, why am I going to go on this show? I'm going to go on the show with a couple thousand reviews or at least a couple hundred reviews. And it really helps when, especially when you're booking guests to have that kind of social proof there. But it also works in general. It doesn't do anything for the rankings at all. It's not in the ranking algorithm. It's just so, you know, you have people who are giving you a review. It's like, you know, a nice positive Yelp review. But it doesn't add to anything as far as, you know, iTunes algorithmically goes. But it's just also nice because even on Grumpy Old Geeks, we ask for reviews. We ask for snarky reviews because then we read them on the (laughs) show in our feedback section and people feel like they're engaged with the show. It helps you build an audience and that you can engage with. So yeah, I think uh, I think Dave's totally off the mark on that one. I think that they are actually important, but not to not for the reasons that you think they are. And I forgot the psychological principle, but does it also help keep that person as a loyal listener as they took the time to write the review? Thus, they have a little bit more ownership of the show. Yeah, they're engaged. They've put their voice to backing you. So, you know, if anybody asks them about a show that they want to listen to, they're going to remember you because they've, they've engaged with the show. You know, they've spent their time. So they have a, uh, they've got a vested interest in your show. I've not the sunk, it's not sunk cost. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but there is, <laughs> there's a psychological principle behind it, but yeah. And we found that, you know, it takes a while for us to get reviews from people, but when, once you do, they stick around for a lot longer. Obviously the shows didn't build large audiences overnight. What kind of time trajectory was that? Are you the typical 10 year overnight sensation? Oh yeah. That's Jordan's been doing this for 12 years and it's taken, taken him 12 years. I've been doing it for six. So I got, I'm halfway there for grumpy old geeks and we have a, a small fraction of what Jordan does. But you were, you were there at that um, tipping point with um, art of charm, right? Yeah. When, when I started and came on as producer, we were doing about 25,000 downloads a day. By the time uh, we left, we were doing about 400,000 downloads a day. So 
when Jordan and I combine forces, you can look at the Libsyn graph and it just is a straight going up to the right the entire time. So yeah, we did a lot of work with trying to figure out what made a good show and what brought people in and how to build that audience. Can we go into that? Because I, I think that's something we all can learn from, you know, what, what was it that, that was that tipping point? Is it one thing or was it a series of small steps? A series of thousands of steps, lots of experimentation, lots of A-B testing, figuring out, you know, what it really was. What was that secret sauce to get it there? And there, honestly, it is show dependent. That's the real, that's the real rub because everybody's got to do it differently depending on their audience and who they're speaking to and what their show is like. Because if you just talking to your buddy, like Brian and I am, Mm -hmm. it's hard to get more people in. I mean, we do about 10,000 downloads an episode on that show, which isn't huge, but it's not top 10%. Oh yeah. 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 No, (laughs) I think we're, we're in the 92nd percentile. I believe if you believe Rob Walsh and Jordan's show is 25 X that at least, but it's harder to do with just two guys talking to each other because you don't have any external forces. Jordan's show, we have guests. The guests Mm -hmm. that come on, when we do a really good show with them, they're going to promote that show to their audience. So that is like, that's a multiplying factor to get more people into your show because you have greater reach just based on the people that you get to come on your show. Not everybody's going to share because if you do a crappy show with somebody, they're never going to mention your name again. And we've had that happen. We've had crappy shows with people and they never, Mm -hmm. you know, never shared it or anything like that. And even the great shows, sometimes they won't share it. So you have to craft your message to get them to share. You have to make it easy for them to share. So every time the guest comes on, as soon as that show goes out, we send them and their people an email with all of the links that they need to. Well, first we thank them for coming on the show because that's, that's key. You have to, you have to make them feel special. Then we give them a list of links to say, here, here's where you can share, like, you know, shared this on Twitter. Here's the link to the episode. Here's a link to the blog post. Here's a link to the file, you know, and give them instructions on how to do it. Figuring that part out was two, three X right there on getting shares from people. That's, that's the experimenting part. We just used to ask them in a quick email, like, Hey, the show's out. Can you share it and not give them any info? Obviously uh. dumb. <laughs> so then just honing those emails and crafting that over the years, you learn the way to speak to your guests, to get them to do the things that you want them to do with sharing, which is very important because if they don't share it, that kind of shows that there weren't, they weren't that into it. So you get the, you also get the proof from the guest that this is a good show. We just did a great show. I love Jordan. We, you know, go check out his show and check out my episode and go from there. And that will build your audience faster. And since Grumpy Old Geeks doesn't have guests, it's, we can't, it's just me and him sharing it. We just, Talk, like talking to the wind, you know, but that's scratching your own itch. That was mm-hmm. kind of by design. So you don't expect to go any farther, right? Oh, it would be nice if we could <laughs> It'd be definitely nice. I mean, we've been growing that show, like I said, for six years now. And there was a time where we, well, actually anything before IAB compliance came into, in, into play doesn't really count for audience growth because Nobody's standardized on anything. So hmm. when I don't know if you remember the great Libsyn culling when I don't know if you do you host with Libsyn? I don't. I use uh, Podbean and I'd love to talk hmm. to you about different hosts if you have um, feelings on that. Yeah, yeah, we but, can go uh, back to that. But yeah, the, uh, was the that great- the Twitter and Facebook autoplays that were running up the, the stats and kind of screwing up numbers? No, this is when they uh, changed their algorithm to be closer to IAB compliance. They're still not completely IAB compliant. 
but as they get closer, everybody's numbers drop like by precipitously mm. and the autoplay thing. Yeah, that's, it's kind of scammy if you're pushing it up a bunch of times. I don't even think we, we don't even really do that for grumpy old geeks. We link to the show notes and then they can go from there. We do have a link to the, the media file in one, but it's the second link. So it doesn't trigger an autoplay and that's on purpose because nobody, nobody listens in, in Twitter. Nobody's going to listen to your show in Twitter. I agree. I've actually had somebody ask me, why don't you get it to where it's in a sound card? And I'm like, who's going to listen there? But nobody, <laughs> I, I've also had mixed results though. There are some people who say, send them to your website from there. They will go to iTunes or whatever, but I've seen that I'll put in links directly to iTunes, directly to Google podcast. So people will listen, mm-hmm. but they don't always make that second step. We do multiple tweets per week for each different platform. So like when a show's done, this is, this is for grumpy old geeks. Uh, I don't handle social for Jordan's show. I don't do any of that side of things, but on grumpy old geeks, we will stack it. So you get the first one is a link to the website and the media file. Next one will be like a link to Google's podcast app. And then one will be a link to Apple. So across the span of the week, cause we don't want to slam everybody with a bunch of stuff. It's just cycles through. So that way, you can hit everybody and you can do it in a measured manner so you're not spamming people and things like that. Okay, that's a cool method. I was wondering about that because I again it seems like this weird formula and then Instagram I give up. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't I I don't know any of the ROI on Instagram. We just we just post funny pictures for Grumpy Old Geeks on Instagram. Jordan is doing a lot more with clips from the show because he's doing video. So we don't do video in Grumpy Old Geeks, so it's completely different. Yeah, but you uh were posting that you're planning to do some kind of video. Eh, that kind of fell by the wayside because it's hard and it's expensive. And Brian in, is in Santa Monica with his kid and I'm out here in the Valley with my dogs and trying to find the right time to do it and getting the tech set up on his end. I can do it all day long. I've got my own studio here, so I can, I can do it. But getting him on board was just a pain. So we're going to try Twitch because uh, my friends, Kyle and Kenny, they used to do the morning show. Uh, for the Good Stuff Network, they had it running pretty well. And it was kind of cool. It was nice to be able to like log in live and see them do the show live and before the edited version. And we thought that would be fun. But just getting the tech set up on it, for what we make on that show, it's just the ROI is not there for the time because we're mm-hmm. slammed on time. We, Brian and I put in about 60 hours a week, I think, between looking at looking at links, formatting everything, doing the show, editing, socials, and all that stuff. I mean, it's a, it's a huge time suck for oh, not yeah. a lot of return. It's more for... <laughs> It's more for just personal gratification and hopefully someday it'll do something. Yeah. I think that's the secret of podcasting is pick a topic that you would do for free because you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. I mean, that's really, that's kind of it. It's, it's not the same as follow your passion, but you need to be able to talk about something for extended periods of time for years. You know, a lot of these people are like, I want a podcast. What are you going to talk about? I don't know. Well, then you're not going to be a very good podcaster. If you can't, if you can't expound on a topic for hours and hours and years and years every week, then you're not going to make it in podcasting. You're just wasting your money. Also, there's the sucking factor. Yeah. Everybody sucks at the beginning. It also comes (laughs) down to your, your dedication. You know, are you willing to get better? Are you willing to edit your own shows? Listen to your foibles and learn, listen to other people's shows, see what they do. How do they get better? You know, over time, everybody grows, but you have to be willing to put in the time to grow. And I know, I mean, Jordan and I have spent, you know, thousands of hours of coaching, just even maybe not thousands, hundreds of hours of coaching on just different aspects of how to talk on a mic. 
we both took voice lessons for a very long time. He still does. I just can't afford to keep going or, you know, I, I think I've hit my peak as far as that goes. And I think you have to be willing to put in that time and you have to be willing to put in that investment. If you really want to be, you know, a professional podcaster, not just a weekend warrior podcaster. If you want to make a living at it, you need to just learn and learn and learn and get better on the mic and learn how to speak and not really you have to entertain, I think, for the most part. And if you're just um and on your way through the day, I don't think that's really a good way to do it. So you got you to work on it. I did want to ask that. And thank you for answering about the uh, coaching. That's one of the things that I really appreciate because there's, you know, people like me, I'm about a year into it mm-hmm. within a yeah, five days. It'll be a year. Oh, congrats. Well, thank you. <laughs> very tired. But <laughs> I have found that it's very easy to get caught up in the mindset of, oh, Tim Ferriss has this many downloads. Jordan Harbinger and Jason, they have all of this. And the truth is you guys have put in hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars and mm-hmm. um, not to mention the equipment that you've had to pay for and learn <laughs> and go yeah. through. And also, what are, about the shows? Do you publish every interview or do you have to throw some of this out? How, how do you go about that? I'll answer that in one second. I don't think anybody should try and compare themselves to Tim Ferriss because Tim came with three New York Times bestsellers under his belt. True. He came with a built-in audience. So never never like compare yourself to Tim because his audience is different than everybody. Same with Joe Rogan. He had 20 years on TV. People try and compare themselves with Joe Rogan. People who come with built-in audiences, you should not compare yourself to, period. And to get back to your question on interviews, yeah. Oh, yeah. We had to spike lots of interviews. You know, sometimes we'll do it in the middle of the interview. And sometimes we'll have to do it after the interview. It all depends on on the situation. But, yeah, I mean, and unfortunately, it's my job to be the one to let them down usually. So learn some judo on how to do that tactfully over the years. But yeah, sometimes it just doesn't work out. Is that what the pre-interview is designed to do as well as to kind of weed out like, yeah, there's some problems here. I don't know if this is going to quite work. Yeah. Yeah. If you're doing a pre-interviews, it really does help because then you can hear how they speak. And if you don't do pre-interviews, but they have videos online or other audio online, you can listen to your guests there to see if like maybe they have a too thick of an accent for your audience or if they just can't speak, period, because some people just can't speak. And you want to figure that stuff out before you get them in your studio for an hour and waste everybody's time. That's one part of it for sure. And also to discuss whether they have the chops to talk about something for an hour. You know, are they a 15 minute wonder where they can talk about something for 15 minutes and they're out of bullet points and Mm. that's it. You know, you got, you have to find out if they're really like a topic expert in what you want them to come on and talk about, because if they're not, you know, you might get somebody that comes on and says, blah, 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 15 minutes. And then they go into Hey, you know, everybody should make their bed because then you've gotten one thing done for, you know, day. <laughs> oh, and, you know, we've got things like that, that, you know, we just laugh at internally. If anybody puts the make your bed thing in their, their show prep before the show, we're like, Nick's nope, moving on. You're not going to have clean your room in there, are you? Nope. No clean your room. It's, uh, no... <laughs> we'll Does this spark joy? No. Oh God. Oh God. That's an interesting point. And I've been getting pitched uh, a lot from booking agencies and things now, and they come with one sheets. So mm-hmm. I typically will look at the one sheet and see the 10 questions I will never ask them. Yeah. You don't want those. I mean, everybody's going to ask them those questions. So 
that's you know lazy podcasting if you go from those one sheets you have to come up with things that nobody has asked them yet or you know at least cover that you can cover the basics with them up front front load that stuff and then mm-hmm. get into the meat get in you come sideways at them ask them different questions that nobody has asked them yet or at least that are novel that they can expound on that are a fit for your audience that's really that is a thing that you have to be able to tailor questions that your audience wants to hear because some other audience might just be fine with the 10 questions who don't know this person. And if it's a 10 minute podcast, that's fine. But if you're doing an hour, you know, you need mm-hmm. to be prepared to go for the long haul. A lot of our show notes on Jordan's show, we will get through a third of them and not even get to two thirds of them mm-hmm. because we over prepare and it's better to over prepare than under prepare. Yeah. I very much believe in that. I have a habit of having like 25, 30 questions and going to th- getting four of them. Mm-hmm. Because I try to use them as openers to hopefully go down a rabbit trail. Yep. Or find always the way to go. Yeah. And, you know, give them, lead them as much as you can, but not too much because you don't want to lead them all the way. You want to get them going, like start the engine and uh, let them take over the, take over the gas pedal. Do you ever run into the curse of knowledge on that? Yes. Sometimes we, we did that a lot in the beginning, but Jordan's gotten much better at dialing things back. He's really good at, at not over over preparing and and just saying everything that the person's going to say and we have we we know too much about them it's like we still even if we know about them we can't say that we have to you have to pull it out of them yeah i found myself doing that where i i know so much about a subject i almost want to reference it shorthand Mm -hmm. and i have to think oh wait nobody listening knows this person i'm trying to introduce this person stop that get get into it as if i don't know it and i'm curious yep um do you use some of this in your editing? For example, the stock questions you said, you know, you front load them or whatever. Do you ever front load things like that and then just chop it off? Sometimes. I mean, it depends. It really depends on the person, depends on the question, it depends on the answer. A lot of that stuff is really just, you know, it's case dependent. On that note, you are a producer or editor. I'm going to say these are probably two different jobs and I'm hoping you could explain them both and and how you serve them okay um editing is straight up editing that's that's all it is you get audio files you spit out a show and each show is different you know has different requirements has different audio requirements different back-end processing requirements but for the most part that is just a you know it's a mechanical job you get the show in you edit you, you give it back it's it takes skill and nuance but it is just more mechanical. Producing is a little different because there's so many aspects to the job. With Jordan's show, it, I've, when I started producing, it was helping to book guests, helping to prep the guests, helping to do pre-interviews, dealing with advertisers, doing advertising spreadsheets, uh, scheduling, and rescheduling, and then rescheduling again. <laughs> Uh, trying to figure out if we're going to have enough episodes for that week and things like that. There's when you're a producer, you you just wear every hat. It's completely you, your job is to get the show from nothing to something. That's really what it is. How do you go about that with the um, guests? Because I, I want to break down different pieces, but how do you go about determining who you're going to have on? Do you have people pitching you directly, or are you reaching out to them, or a combination of both? Over the years, that has changed dramatically dramatically i just made up a new word (laughs) hey i like that yeah dramatically it's changed changed drastically when we first started with aoc we were pitching everybody nobody was coming to us 
And it was just, it was work. We had to go every week to try and find somebody. So when you're, when you're always out there pitching to people, you're going to have a very scarcity mentality mindset because it's like, mm-hmm. am I going to have enough people to do this show next week? Mm-hmm. If we don't have a show, we can't run the ads. If we can't run the ads, we don't eat. So you're just like, okay, well, I wouldn't normally take this guy, but I'm going to take him anyway, you know, mm-hmm. just to have something in the can so you can, you know, have the show. As you grow and you, you know, get more fame and get more notoriety, people will start to pitch to you. A lot of the people that start to pitch to you are garbage. You just have to know that, you know, 95% of the people that are going to pitch you on your, to come on your show have an agenda and they just want to sell something. If your show is about selling something that people come on for, great. You have, you have your own, you know, set of people to go to. If your show is specific to a topic, then you have to be the one to filter out the people that you don't want, filter in the people you do. But all along that process, you're still going to be identifying people that are your dream guests on the show. You need to have a list of people that you want to be on that to come on the show and actively go after them because it's a long process to get people who have things that are really worth talking about to come on your podcast. Nowadays, it's a little easier because people know what podcasts are. Back then, nobody knew what the hell it was. And it was just, it was a process to get people on. We still go through the process of trying to get people on it. It is a tough process. Booking is the hardest part of the show. Hands down, the hardest part of the show. Because, you know, once your show grows, you want to have people of a certain quality. And to get those people, like I said, their schedule matters. Your schedule matters. Technology matters. Just the 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 PR people in between matter because they're usually a roadblock. The schedulers, the bookers, especially if you're dealing with somebody famous, it's really hard. So you can spend a year. Like I said, I spent two and a half years to get Chris Hadfield on. I mean, there were there were multiple guests. Darren Brown comes to mind. Yeah, Darren Brown, 10 years, you know, to get that guy <laughs> on the show. And fortunately, that that just worked out because we had Sam Harris on our old show. And we we saw that Darren was finally coming out of his cave. It was talking to people again. He's he's notoriously reclusive, but now that he's got the new shows out for Netflix, he has to promote them. So we're like, ah, our chance, our chance. So Sam Harris helped out on that one big time. Do you do some of that? You look and say, oh, such and such has a book coming out soon. Maybe they're ready to start making the rounds. Yes. Um, basically, you can you can go and look on Amazon and build your own spreadsheets of uh, upcoming releases for books. There's a way that you can just go in and try and figure out what all the upcoming releases are and genres that you're looking for. And you can spread it out and figure out, okay, this person's got a book coming out in November. Uh, It's now May. I'm going to start pitching in June. And then maybe we can get them in in October and then have it booked before that. So it's a long process to get people to come in. So you're always looking, you know, months out to try and get people in because just that scheduling process and just trying to get through the filters of the people that, are in front of them can take months. You know, you have to keep sending, keep sending yet. Okay. Their PR person doesn't work. Let me go find their book publisher and find the angle for their publicist and, uh, and okay. trying to figure out how to get through that wall. And, you know, another, another way to get good recommendations is to get in with every publisher. You can find the PR departments, send them a pitch about your show and say, I'm interested in people in this niche, this genre, And, you know, this specificity level and get in with those people. And what they will do is they'll send you books every week and they'll send Mm. you one sheets and you can pick from their people because their job is to get people on shows because they want to promote the book. 
So Absolutely. once you get in with the, yeah, once you get in with the publishers, you can just get, I mean, I was getting 15, 20 books a week at one point and wow. it got, got to be a little bit ridiculous. I'm like, can you just send me a PDF? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my no, little uh, lending library down the street, my neighbor had one of those boxes. I don't know if you've seen them. People put out. Oh yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they got so many books from me. It was ridiculous, <laughs> but that that's another so way to get to people in like in a genre that you're looking for, just get in with those book publishers. That's brilliant too, because you may not be able to get through their filters or their people directly, but the publisher darn sure is going to tell them, Hey, you got to promote this book Mm -hmm. and we've got this contact, this contact, this contact, this contact. So it's kind of going at them sideways. That's smart to tell. Their filters might still say no, but it's, it helps. It's one of those little levers that helps get people to notice your show and get people on. Do you get a lot of referrals from uh, previous guests? Like I've worked the FBI angle for about five guests. We don't get <laughs> referrals, but we, if we see somebody and we know that they know another person, we will ask that person for an intro for sure. On that, like um, a couple recently, you actually had uh, two FBI people one week. Do you oh, yeah. deliberately try to uh, uh, put complimentary guests together like that? Sometimes, if it makes sense, you know, because we usually are out. Uh, a month or so with shows, maybe two months sometimes. So we've got a, all of these shows in the can and we craft it for a lot of times it's release dates for if somebody's promoting something, those guys can't get moved, but mm-hmm. if they're not out selling anything, it's much easier for us to just kind of script a narrative with different shows per week. So with those guys, it made sense to back to back them for sure. Do you ever have, this will sound terrible, but do you ever have, um, almost regret when you have a guest with an episode just freaking amazing and you're kind of like i wish i didn't have to follow it up in two days with something else that kind of pushes in the back cattle you want to just sort of sit there and gather no that doesn't really happen i mean just the the way our release schedule goes you have to publish you can't just let it sit i mean it it because the the other thing is that might be an awesome episode for you, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people that might not jive with it. So True. you want to give them something else, you know? So sometimes it makes more sense to not have back to backs like the FBI thing, but they were, they were slightly different enough where it kind of worked, right. but it's nice to have multiple topics per week because then if person doesn't, if the person a doesn't like show one person, a might like show two if person B doesn't like show one might not like show two. And then we follow it up with our Friday show, which is just us jabbering about questions that people send in so it makes sense for like a diversity issue to have different types of shows back to back that makes a lot of sense and i can see do you then have your audience who maybe listens to every other show or every third show or picks and chooses like i'll say with rogan i like joe rogan but i don't listen to every joe rogan show they're three hours you, you can't you, know, you but i'm like eat. elon musk i'm gonna listen to that mm-hmm. or you know a particular guest like uh, jack dorsey lately i listened to that I'm sorry, but well, I I think it's interesting, but um, I'm guessing that your audience maybe picks and chooses, or do you know that offhand? I don't know it offhand, but just anecdotally from what you just said, my personal listening habits and everybody else's listening habits, I think that that's you know there are people that do that. There are a lot of people that listen to every episode, so just from the feedback we get, but it's it's really hard to quantify that because once they have it. You can't tell if they listened or not. There's no way to tell. Your feedback Fridays, did that help 
propel the show to the next level? Uh, yeah, it actually did. Because now we've got, it's, it's a vehicle for audience engagement. So people who get their question answered on the show, going to be fans for much longer, unless we give them really bad advice, then <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> Double-edged sword on that one. Uh, but yeah, that turned out when we started it back at the, the other show, we're like, it, it started out as a really, you know, small thing just to, to try it out. Mm-hmm. And after about three or four months, we started to get feedback in that it was people's favorite episode. And we're like, well, okay, we got something here. And that's why we brought it over to the new show because it's like, okay, we're going to, we're going to keep engaging with the audience because it's a way for them to talk to us directly and a way for us to, you know, give them feedback on just all of our experience. And if we don't have experience, we have a stable of experts on just about any topic that we can find now. We send them an email and say, hey, can you give us some advice on how to answer this question? And almost everybody's like, sure, here you go. Boop, 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 done. You know? Oh, that's cool. Is it also a good um, reach back in a way to keep the relationships going? Like I know Chris Lockhead was on a Feedback Friday mm-hmm. with Jordan. And maybe it's a way to have somebody on that's a friend of the show or whatever to just kind of keep their name alive, even though you're not necessarily going to have a full interview. Yeah. I mean, if they're if they're a really good like you know, domain expert, it's really good to have them back on. We don't do it to maintain relationships because Jordan does that automatically with what he does with his six minute networking course and all of that Jordan harbinger.com slash course, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. Drop away. <laughs> and he's the master networker. So he keeps his relationships up with these people all the time. We try not to have full episodes anymore with guests because sometimes they just want to hear, you know, us talk about it, not anybody else. Mm, okay. And that's also another thing. Why grumpy old geeks doesn't have guests anymore. We had a bunch of guests on. We had Tim Ferriss on twice. Our numbers, tanked nobody wanted to hear him they wanted to hear us so like every time we'd have a guest on we noticed our numbers would go down and people would complain we're like they're like we just want to hear you guys I'm like okay so that's the format of that show now we had guests from the from the beginning and it turns out that's not what the audience wanted and on feedback friday we're kind of seeing the same thing it's like you guys just do your thing you know did you always have enough questions to fill the show though or did you have to kind of nurse it along uh yeah there have been there have been some skinny weeks that's for sure (laughs) very skinny weeks and then there have been times when we've just got so many questions we can't even read them all and it's kind of you know feast or famine so we bank a lot of them now there's only eight questions per show so it's it's okay getting easier but uh it's there definitely been times especially when we restarted the show we're just like asking people that we know we're like do you have anything that we can answer for you? <laughs> okay. I, I was g- going to ask if you like made up questions possibly like, uh, because you always have a, a catchy um, cinder name or whatever, mm-hmm. like if fuddled and befriended or what yeah. <laughs> you always throw on things. And I got to make those up right before airtime. <laughs> I'm always scrambling to make those up. <laughs> so the good people will send us a, a funny one with their, with their uh, email. But most of the time I make those up. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, I, I we've never made up a question. If we if we have to fill something, we'll just give you know tell a quick story or give some piece of life advice. Okay, or something that happened to you recently. Blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah. Or you know we can do an amalgamation of things that people ask us all the time. It's just like you know what do you, what's your favorite question to ask a guest? You know because we get that question so many times. We're like, well, there isn't one. <laughs> go do, go do the work. Thank you for that. God, uh, because. It, 
everybody likes to know what is the best question in the world. Like Cal Fussman, that was cool. I really liked his, um, what is it, um, about your best friend? But I feel like you're starting to get into stock question territory and stock Hate questions yeah. turn me off. We don't do that. No. And Cal Fussman, by the way, when I talked about a 10 hour edit, Cal Fussman was a 10 hour edit. I don't know if you've ever heard really? Cal Fussman speak in person. No. He talks like oh this. really? <laughs> yeah. He is oh, the, wow. the he he thinks they're all dramatic pauses. And he's a great guy, very, very intelligent, but his speaking style is not conducive to podcasting, or at least my style of podcasting for what I want to give to the audience. I am a proponent of editing everything because if you can strip out one minute mm-hmm. of your show, then that is multiply that times how many people listen to your show. That's how much time you have saved of humanity and people can get <laughs> back to work. I, I've had that philosophy with software, with everything I've done from long, long ago. There was a, uh, a documentary on PBS. I think it was in the really early 90s called Triumph of the Nerds. Did you ever watch that? I think I did. I want to say that um, Andy Anaka was in that for some reason. Might have been, yeah, might have been. Um, but Steve Jobs was in it, Bill Gates was, everybody was in it. And mm. in that documentary, there was the story of Steve trying to shave off like one second from the Mac boot time because of that very same reason. And I got that from Steve Jobs and I brought that with me to podcasting. And I mean, I, I just, I, you know, I give credit to Steve Jobs for that, that mindset and people appreciate it. People appreciate it. They don't want, they want to get what they want to get as quickly as possible because they got other podcasts to get onto, you know? So that's why like listening to Cal with, you know, those extended pauses, if you can tighten it up, make it sound natural. It has to sound natural. It can't sound Mm -hmm. edited at all. Uh, And nobody knew that I did that much work on that show. No, you can't can't tell. So if you can't tell, then hell, then nobody can tell. So, which is great. You don't want it to sound edited, but you want to edit it. I just had to get that in today because it's one of the things people are like, like old school podcasters are like, you never edit. You just press play or you press record and then you save it and then you put it out there. I'm like, that means you don't respect your audience. That's how I look at it. That means you don't respect your audience. And if you don't respect your audience, how are they going to respect you? All valid points. And hopefully you won't despise me, but I'm not going to be able to cut too much of it because I'm a one person deal. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you that. You know, speaking to different levels of podcasters out there, like um, with the Jordan Harbinger show, you guys are professionals and it is your full time job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do and nothing else. <laughs> you have a team. I mean, you, you, nobody is by themselves doing everything any longer, correct? Um, in what way? What do you mean? Well, Jordan is the primary host. You're yes. sometimes co host. You are a producer and you do some editing, but you also have an audio. I editor. do all the editing. Okay, you don't have, I have, have it in England? No, he's gone. We couldn't afford to bring him over with us when we made the oh, move okay. because we had to start from scratch. So I had to take on his job and my producing job just to make sure the show came out. And I've okay. stuck with it. So I edit every, everything that comes out of the Jordan Harbinger show, I edit. Oh, cool. That helps with the flow. And then mm-hmm. Jen does the booking? Yes. Jen and Jordan both do booking now. I don't do any more booking. That's, that's, that's gone off to them because they're much better at it. Because <laughs> Jordan has the relationships. And when you're trying to book big names... It's it's cooler when the you know the the host, host is actually reaching out to you. In most cases, in other sure. cases, it's cooler if a booker reaches out to you. And so we've got another booker on staff now. He's a freelance booker, but mm. Jen Jen and Jordan do the bulk of the work on that. Yeah, and then you have somebody else who does show notes. 
Yep. Robert Fogarty does our show notes and uh, works on the website. He's kind of the, he does the show notes and the socials and uh, website posting. Okay. And then uh, don't you have another person who does worksheets? Uh, actually, Robert does the worksheets now too. So he's, he's taken that on. Okay. So there's four of you. Uh, there are four of us. We also have a video editor in Canada. Okay. To, and do the, to actually artist. do the editing. Hmm? And a graphic artist on call. No, Jen does that. Jen, yeah, Jen does most of our graphic stuff. Okay. And so between all of you, and it's all a, a more than full-time job, I'm sure you're putting in this 60 hours a week, mm-hmm. or yep. some crazy numbers. What do you recommend for the smaller podcaster? And yes, it's always about me, who mm-hmm. has a full-time day job and yep. their own show, and they do every single thing, social editing, research, guest, et cetera. What would you recommend? What elements are the most important to focus on if you have to choose? Uh, if I had to choose the, I mean, the actual show is the most important part, obviously making sure that the show is great. Promoting the show is definitely a must, but I think socials are just so hit and miss anymore. We don't get a lot of traffic off socials and it's kind of become one of those things where it's like uh, it's you have to do it, but it shouldn't be the most important part of the show. Okay. Honestly, that's the I would if, if I had to dial back on anything, it would be that. But quality of the show, production value of the show in the guests is really like, you know, the, the show itself, the MP3 that you put out is your product. The marketing mm-hmm. of the product also is important, but you can do that, you know, on your lunch break or things like that. I would spend the bulk of your time when you come home at night, work on the production of the show, getting the guests, prepping the guests, and being sure that you can put out a the best product that you can. Every episode should be better than the next or the last. That's, you know, you should see a progression as you go. And yeah, I mean, you're going to put in the time. It's there's no way around it. It's tough. It's really tough if you want to get a high quality, professional sounding show. And there's just no two ways around it. Like all those pieces are kind of required. Okay. So you'd recommend then spending the time in the editing and really, really making the show as tight as possible. So maybe fewer people discover it, but hopefully they stick around. Yes. And also, you know, get your guests to to do socials on it and promote it themselves too, because they're going to have a bigger audience than you are. So get them to promote it instead of you promoting it. Like don't spend your time promoting it yourself. Get them to promote it. Because that's going to give you a leg up. And then you can just spend time on the show. And also, I recommend that everybody edit their own show for the first at least year or two. Because you're going to hear things that are going to make you better. Over, If you hear yourself doing this one thing over and over and over again, it's going, to, it's going to drive <laughs> you crazy. You're like, why do I say you know? Or so. If you start every sentence with so, it's you're going to start editing that out. And then you're going to make... What I did was put post-it notes at the bottom of my monitor. <laughs> so for every show, I said, don't say so. Don't say, you know, and, you Do know, you find yourself <laughs> changing up because I, I, okay. Back in the day I was teaching and I, I was an actually person. Well, actually, mm. well, actually, and my wife will always catch me on these things. And eventually then I start to, it, it's like a cycle and then I'll start to hear it. And over time, it starts to fade out. I'll be like, eh, and yeah, <laughs> um, you, my, you'll, my you'll learn. yeah, you'll learn. 
but then I'll change up. It's like there's always some crutch word that seems to slide in. I probably did a so for a while. My latest one is cool. Okay, cool. Oh, cool. <laughs> so yeah. I'm sitting there editing. I'm like, oh, there it goes again. There it goes again. Yeah, and it's also a lot of what's in the zeitgeist. When you hear other shows and if other shows have verbal tics, you True. will start picking up on those tics. There was, after I edited so many shows, I noticed that, especially with new people who are new to the, the game of podcasting, if they had a guest on, if they're, you know, I know how this, the host is supposed to sound. Mm-hmm. They get on a guest that has some kind of annoying verbal tick. By the <laughs> end of the episode, the host has already affected that tick because they're trying to have a conversation with that person. So you're going to try and match and mirror them as you go, but yeah. you're going to do it subconsciously. So by the end, you know, somebody who I know is a great speaker is doing the, um, smack thing again. And she <laughs> never does that. Or he never does that. It's like, Oh, you pick up on that kind of thing. Oh God. Especially if you're a natural mimic. Yeah. I, had that. I mean, Chris Voss, I had that with him. Like you were born in Iowa. It sound like a New Yorker. <laughs> but, well, this is, this has been awesome. And we've been all over the place, but I did name the show unstructured. Therefore it's covered. Yeah. Hey, way to, way to front load that for sure. Like, hey, this is what you get, guys. <laughs> this is what you get. Where can people find you and learn more? JPD.me? Yeah, JPD.me. It's got all the links to everything else that I do. So just go there. It hasn't been updated in a while because I've been busy podcasting and working on my podcasting course that will be coming out soon. Oh, I'm wow. Finally tired of everybody making money off teaching podcasting and doing it poorly. If they were doing it well, I wouldn't even care. But my uh, my new course will be coming up pretty soon, which will be fantastic for me to get it out of my head. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I will have to look that up. Will that be on jpd.me or you? It'll be linked or? from there. I'm still I'm still coming up with the uh, the URL where that's going to live. But um, I tried it once already at propodcasting.school, and I did a free tutorial on how to get started with Libsyn. And it was fun, mm-hmm. but then I had to go back to work. Uh, so, uh, but th- this new one is going to be a professional grade class. It's if you want to become a professional podcast producer or editor or host, then I'm going to have everything in there for, for that. So working on the scripts right now, be filming it soon and getting it out the door, hopefully in the next month, because it's got to go. Fantastic. Oh, and you have good support around you too. Yeah, hopefully <laughs> we'll see. Well, and let me see grumpy or GOG.show. Yep, GOG.show is the best place to go. <laughs> oh, he's a poet. Yes, and then, don't of course, you know it? <laughs> JordanHarbinger.com. That's it. That's that's the bulk of them. Well, hey, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more, please check out unstructuredpod.com. There you can find all the episodes, free subscription information, and most of the players and even how to contact me. I would love to hear from you. You can even set up a 15-minute call with me about the show or anything you like. Again, it's at unstructuredpod.com, and I hope to hear from you. Now, in the spirit of sharing, 
Here are other shows you may want to consider checking out. Thanks again. Hi, this is Kara Mayer Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in L.A. and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the twelfth grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's really famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session. Hey, listener, Dutch here from Voice from the Underground, the podcast. My co-host and I want to invite you to check out our little corner of the podcast verse. At Voice from the Underground, we talk about all the crazy happening around us and try to make a little bit of sense out of the nonsense with little to no results. If the idea of hearing three semi-intelligent, outspoken nerds talk about politics, social issues, current events, sports, movies, pretty much anything that we decide to talk about because, well, it's our show, appeals to you, grab your shovel and come on down to the underground and then consult a qualified psychotherapist. Find us wherever you get your podcasts, just not where you buy your weed. Boys from the underground.